So we continue our series this morning in the uh, book of 1 Samuel, and we're, we're not looking through the whole book exhaustively. Instead, we're looking at what we're calling the life of David, uh, looking at snapshots of, of, of King David's life. And one of the reasons for that is that uh, in all of ancient literature, uh, there's more written about this man, King David, than any other historical figure. We have more uh, accounts of the life of David than any other figure from this time. And so it's important, obviously, to the storyline of the Bible. We know that, that David as king is, is, is central to biblical theology and the way that we understand the gospel and the way that we understand God's plan to redeem the world through Jesus. Uh, a lot of that story is told through the life of David as a forerunner and as a type of Jesus. So we're looking at it this, this fall. Uh, after, um, after Richard Nixon uh, resigned... He, he, he famously, or, or maybe not so famously, uh, gave advice to Ted Kennedy about running for office. Uh, Ted Kennedy was, his, was a friend of his and was asking advice about running for president. And Nixon said, if you want to run for president, uh, lose 20 pounds. That was his advice. And this story and other stories uh, like this are recounted in a book by Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And Postman, in sort of commenting on this advice from Nixon to Kennedy, says this. He says, it would appear that overweight people are now effectively excluded from running for higher political office. Probably bald people as well. Almost certainly those whose looks are not significantly enhanced by a cosmetician's art. Indeed, we may have reached the point where cosmetics has replaced ideology as the field of expertise over which a politician must have competent control. Maybe this is just a modern phenomenon, you're, you're thinking. Maybe people weren't always uh, like this. But there's another place in Postman's book where he describes the presidential debates that took place between Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln uh, in 1858. These were known as the Great Debates. There were seven great debates between Douglas and Lincoln. What you might not know is that historians estimate that only 5% of Americans knew what either Lincoln or Douglas looked like. Only 5% of Americans knew what they actually looked like. Imagine that. Imagine a presidential race where 95% of the country doesn't even know what the person looks like. And their arguments are therefore based on their validity. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> but those that were present, this is what's striking, those that were present for the debates continually sided with Lincoln because he looked presidential, they said. He was tall, he was stately, and Douglas was, was short and, and stocky. So we must know that Lincoln had better arguments because the people that saw what he looked like said he was good for president, and the people that didn't see what he looked like said that he was good for president. And our text today deals with the same kind of issue. It's a contemporary problem. It's a problem from about 150 years ago, and it's a problem from the ancient world as well. It's a problem that David and Samuel experience in 1 Samuel chapter 16. So let's unpack the sermon this morning by answering a question. A simple question. What does God look at? What does God look at? Or put another way, how does God see beauty? What does God look at or how does God see beauty? And we're going to unpack the sermon and try to inductively answer that question. I'm going to read the text to us this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 13, and we'll pray and we'll get into it. 1 Samuel chapter 16, 
starting at verse one. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you should, shall do and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had, a beautiful, and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. This is God's word for it this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Father, we ask for your help now as we come uh, to see what you have for us. We pray that the Spirit would illuminate the scriptures to us. We pray that uh, heavy hearts, longing hearts, uh, exuberant hearts would all find their hope and rest and, 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 and satisfaction in Jesus as we, uh, as we preach and as we sit under the word today. Lord, we can only do this uh, by your Holy Spirit and by your power. So we ask for you to come and we invite you to come. Help me. In Jesus' name, amen. So point one is the seeing God. Point one is the seeing God. So let me give us some quick background and just make sure that we're all caught up to this point. The book of Samuel uh, in chapter one uh, opens up uh, looking at the nation of Israel at a time when they don't have a king. And the story uh, focuses in on this barren woman named Hannah. And this woman, Hannah, as we've looked at, is, is tormented by the fact that she can't have any children, and for reasons that I, I don't have time to recapitulate here, but you can go back and listen to it. Uh, but she weeps, she weeps bitterly over her status. But God hears her. God comes to her, he satisfies her soul, satisfies her longing, and then opens her womb and gives her a child. And she gives her a son named Samuel. And this boy, Samuel, he grows up and he becomes a prophet and he becomes a judge over all of Israel. But the people of Israel complain because they want to be like the other nations around them. They don't simply want a judge and a prophet. They want a king. 
And the intention by God was that he would be king over them, but they, they wanted more than that. They wanted a human king to rule over them. So God gives them what they want, and he gives them uh, Saul as their first king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, we have a description of what Saul was like. And it reads like this. He's talking about Saul as a son of Kish, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. For his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. He was handsome. He was taller than anyone else in the tribe. He simply looked kingly. He looked like a king. He looked what they thought they wanted in a king is what they saw in this man, Saul. But last week, as Mitch showed us in 1 Samuel chapter 15, just the previous passage, we see that Saul doesn't obey the voice of God. And so God rejects Saul as king over Israel. And last week's passage, the last verse... Verse 1535, if you have your Bible open, still ends like this. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And then the very next verse is our passage this morning. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. And I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So Samuel's grieving over Saul, so God says, go anoint a new king. You don't need to grieve any longer. But I said a moment ago that we're going to unpack the sermon by answering the question, what does God see? And this text uh, is, there's a remarkable use of, of, of word plays in this text. And Hebrew is a remarkable language and that meaning is often communicated not just through grammatical syntax, but meaning is also communicated by word plays, words that sound like other words and words that look like other words. Meaning in, in Hebrew narrative is, is derived by looking at some of these things. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 16.1 says, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Quite literally, what it says is I have seen for myself a king. I have looked, I have seen for myself a king. In other words, God's saying, I look at Jesse's sons and I see a king. You know, another example of this is the description of Saul that we read a moment ago in 9.2. It says that his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any other people. He's a man of great height. You know there's one other place in Samuel where that phrase occurs? It's in 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 4, describing Goliath, the one whom David will have to conquer. It's telling us something. It's telling us something. The writer is using that word, word play to tell us something about the nature of Saul. So God says, quite literally, I have seen for myself a king. Look down at verse 6. When Samuel begins to survey the sons of Jesse, he says in verse 6, when they came, he looked on Eliab. Same word that's used in chapter and verse 1. God sees, says, I've seen a king among the sons of Jesse. Samuel comes, looks at the first one, looks and sees and says, surely this is the anointed one from the Lord. Now you understand 
why Samuel thinks this way. Samuel thinks this way because a king, a king in the ancient world was, was, was one that was, was mighty for battle, right? He was one that was tall in stature. He was strong. He was able to lead the people. You know, the one that was strongest in the tribe was the one that would often lead the tribe. So Samuel sees Eliab, who's likely tall in stature, has a certain appearance to him and says, this has got to be the guy. This has got to be the guy. We know from, um, we know uh, historians, they don't know how tall uh, William Wallace was, but they know that his sword was five feet six inches long. That's a big dude. (laughs) Swing that bad boy around. He was the biggest of the tribe, so he was the leader. He was the king. So you understand naturally why Saul, excuse me, Samuel thinks this way. But the heart of the passage is verse 7. God's response to Samuel for thinking this way. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Don't look on his appearance. You see the contrast in the way that we see versus the way that God sees. And by the way, isn't it a little ironic that Samuel needs to be corrected here? (laughs) Hasn't he learned from Saul that height and looks aren't really all necessary to be king? Even Saul needs to be corrected. So what are some implications for us? What are some implications for us? First, true beauty is always internal. True beauty is always internal. Look, when you're looking for a leader or a king, what you really need is someone who has inner beauty. What you really need is someone who's loving. What you really need is someone who's wise You don't really ultimately need someone that has outward appearances, but you need someone who has inner beauty, not just outward successes, but you need one who's going to be a leader that has an inner life that's one of character. It's one of love. It's one of wisdom. It's one of inner beauty. There's a story. There's a story um, by George MacDonald, and it's called The Curate's Awakening, and it's it's a short story that I... I found in a commentary, and it's a story of this young Anglican minister, and he's not really converted. He just became um, a minister because, you know, it was, you know, it was either doctor, lawyer, or, or minister, and wanted to do something that was respectable and so on, but he's not, he's not a Christian. And he's in his first year of ministry, and he's kind of finding his way, and uh, he, gets, he gets found out to be a fraud, and he receives a letter from one of his parishioners basically outing him, saying, I, I, I know, I can tell, I know who, I know who you are. And he meets with this man, and he, and he finds out that this man that he's met with has this deep, deep uh, knowledge of the scriptures. He has this abiding love of God, but, but he's, he's the outcast in the congregation. He, he, the, the, the story calls him a dwarf. He's, a, he's, he's, a, he's small in stature. He says that his appearance is, is, is marred, and he's the outcast of sorts in the congregation. And so this young Anglican minister begins to walk with this man, and this man disciples him. And they do it all behind closed doors because still this Anglican minister can't be seen as, as a, the fraud that he is. And he can't be seen as a, as a friend to even this, to this person. And the commentary 
summarizes a story like this. He says this story is fascinating because it illustrates the fundamental principle of our text. The truth about a person is a matter of the heart and not the eyes. The community between which Wingfold and Polworth, the minister and the man, live, accept the new minister as their spiritual leader because he now has a considerable commitment to the Christian faith. But they continue to pity the misshapen dwarf as someone who should live alone because he has so little to offer the world. How little do they know? This is an abiding problem with us, though. Verse 16, 7 says it's a universal problem. He says that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's an abiding problem. It means it's a problem that that spans all generations. It's not a problem that's just in the ancient world. It's not a problem that's just now. It's a human condition. It's a statement about the nature of human beings. Man looks on appearances. God looks at the heart. But I would suggest that we are living in a culture that is more bombarded with images and appearances than ever before. It simply plagues us. We are a completely image-driven culture. One obvious example is the inundation of social media. You know, Instagram started in October 2010, seven years ago. Okay? There are 700 million Instagram accounts right now. In seven years, there are 700 million users. And it grew exponentially faster than Facebook ever did. Why? Because it's completely image-driven. It's not about content. It's not about ideas. It's not about engaging something critically. It's about images. Man looks on outward appearances. It's just simply a fact. Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, suggests that we rarely, if ever, engage a new technology technology critically. We rarely, if ever, engage a new technology critically. We just assume it. We just just take it on. We don't don't consider what the invention of, of the factory will do. The invention of the factory largely split up the nuclear family. Fathers began to go to work eight to ten hours a day. That didn't happen prior to that. Did we consider the impact of the technology before we did it? No, we just embraced the technology. Do we consider what everyone walking around with, with, with computers in our pockets actually does to us? Do we consider what adding an Instagram account to us actually does to us? It may sound trite, but if God is telling us that our propensity as human beings is already to look at outward appearances, we should be cautious in the ways in which we intensify our ability to look on outward appearances. (laughs) It's not shocking that there's 700 million users. We should look at 1 Samuel 16, 7 and be like, of course. We're prone to look on outward appearances. And then we should ask ourselves as people of God, ask the critical question, what is it doing to us? What is the medium doing to us? Is it bringing more peace in our lives? Uh, Doubtful. It's oftentimes bringing more anxiety. It's bringing more disruption. It's bringing disunity, jealousy, envy, strife. Lack of contentment. Because we're looking on outward appearances. I'm not, gonna, I'm not challenging everyone here to go delete your Instagram account this afternoon. I'm challenging us to think critically about the technologies that we embrace. 
and challenge us is to look to the word of God. And the word of God says, you're already prone to look on outward things. Okay, that's, that's implication one, image driven. Second is the rampant, deplorable problem of pornography. I read one of the most staggering statistics this week that I have probably read all year. I read a statistic this week in an article that was probably the most shocking statistic I've heard all year. It was so shocking. I was sitting in my study. I had to go get Matt Zrust, okay, and have him hear it too. And he was physically taken aback as well. The article was talking about how just one pornography site, one, has 64 million unique U.S. visitors every single day. Just for comparison's sake, YouTube has 30 million unique U.S. visitors each day. That is staggering. Taking into consideration that there are only about a little over 300 million Americans. And that's just one website. One of the most, I think, influential books written in the last 10 years on this topic is called Wired for Intimacy. Okay? If, I would say that if you read just one book on this subject, read that one. It's not super long. It's under 200 pages. But the whole argument of the book, Wired for Intimacy, is that by looking at certain images, neuropathways in your brain are actually changing. That your brain and the neuropathways in your brain are wired in a certain way for you to experience intimacy in a certain way. And that when you look at pornography, you're actually rewiring those neuropathways in your brain. Which means that when you look at an image, it's changing the way that you experience pleasure in the future. Which means that you're actually rewiring your brain in terms of intimacy. So that you're no longer wired the way that you originally were to enjoy your spouse. You've rewired your brain by looking at images to be particularly satisfied with images. That's scary. And for all the other moral reasons to not look at pornography, the application from this text is that you are programming yourself to do the very thing that this text tells us not to do. You're looking on outward appearances, not on matters of the heart. There's a, there's a ton of other moral reasons that we can talk about this issue. But just this text, this issue, is that you are programming yourself to look on outward appearances rather than matters of the heart. Third implication and by the way, this sermon's going to be like a funnel, like the, the first point's longer than the second point than the third, so don't get worried. Third implication, what, what, do we, what do we communicate to older people about appearances? Look, I'm, I'm still a younger man, but I'm, I'm not the man I was when I was 25, okay? I, I, I walk by, uh, down the street, and I look at a, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a reflection of myself, and I go, hey, it must just, that must, must be the t-shirt, you know? And, or, you know, my brother, you know, he, he, he pokes at me for balding in the back, and I'm like, what are you talking about? And then I, you know, I see a picture of myself, and I realize I look like Peyton Manning from the back, and it's like, oh my goodness, 
But as a culture, we, we blast older people and make them think that they're supposed to look like younger people. We look on outward appearances. We don't value what gray hair and aged skin oftentimes means. Because it oftentimes means, in this room especially, a life that's been spent for God and his glory. It means a life that's been lived with purpose for his sake. But we don't value it as a culture. We value outward appearances. Older women trying to look like younger women. Older men trying to look like younger men. It's again and again and again. Fourth implication. We delay marriage. We delay marriage. We look for this perfect specimen of a man or a woman rather than looking at the heart. Rather than looking at the heart. Young people, young men, women, listen to me. The content of someone's character is what is going to matter in life. A man or a woman that you can trust, a man or a woman who will love you, a man or a woman who will love God above all else, that's what you want. That's what you want. Who cares if he's cool or not? You can buy cool. You, can, you can't buy character. Why did you laugh at that? <laughs> okay. And finally, implication. And then we'll go to our second point. As a culture... We have, no, as, a, as, a, as a secular culture in the age we live in, we have nothing left to look on but outward appearances. We've got nothing left to look on. Look, what do I mean by that? There no longer is a moral consensus in our society, okay? We can no longer say what virtue actually is. The only virtue that we know in our society is that you're not supposed to prevent someone else from being exactly what they want to be. And we don't even know what that is. We don't even define what that is. You just can't prevent someone else from being exactly what they want to be. That's the, that's, that's the moral ethic of the society we live in. Okay, that's pretty thin because we don't even define that. It's pretty thin. We, can't, we don't have an agreed consensus about what's right, what's wrong, what human flourishing is, what a man is, what a woman is. So in the absence of that, as a culture, all we've got left is outward appearances. As a culture, we're forced to only look at looks. We only judge people, engage people by the outward appearance, how they look. Because there's no moral substance, there's no moral fiber in our society. By the way, this is somewhat of an aside, but it, 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 it is... I, Rust helped help me realize this this week. It's, it's complete, on this, on this point of, of, of moral um, absence, it's complete lunacy and irony that society praised the death of Hugh Hefner a few weeks ago as an agent of moral change, and then two weeks later, vehemently denounce Harvey Weinstein as a predator and a monster. That's insane. It's the exact same culture. Weinstein is a product of the culture that Hugh Hefner propagated. One is seen as an agent of social change. The other is seen as a predator and as a monster. It doesn't make any sense. 
They're both products of the same culture. They're both products of the same secular humanist sexual revolution kind of culture. They both should be denounced. So the only thing that matters, the only thing that matters in life is your inner life. Let me just put it to you this way. That means the things that matter most in life, and I think we should ask ourselves as a people, as those that have the Spirit of God and are growing in godliness, have we become more people that are more beautiful in our inner life than the last few years? Have you, have, you, have you had a lesser hold of your own opinion? Are you less envious? Are you less jealous? Are you less self-defensive than you were a few years ago? Is there a cultivating, is God cultivating an inner beauty in your heart? Are you more forgiving than you were a few years ago? More loving? Less concerned about how you look? Because the only thing that really matters and is going to matter in your life is your inner life. Which leads us to our second point, point two, the God that gives. The God that gives. So now there's the point in the sermon where we have to correct an innate human tendency. And really, we have to correct something that sadly pervades the church too often. Because your tendency right now is to think, okay, I need to be a person that has a good heart. I need to figure out how to be more gentle, more kind, more loving, etc. A lot of us are thinking that right now. And if I closed the sermon right now, I would close with an incredible weight upon you. Because you'd get home this afternoon and maybe it'd be a little nicer, right? Smile a little bit more at the kids, help with the dishes. You'd drive to work tomorrow, the traffic would start to wear on you. And by Tuesday, pretty much things would be back to normal. If you think this text is saying, and that God is saying, I looked at all the sons of Jesse and they all had average hearts. But David, he had a great heart. And you're missing the point of the passage. And you're missing one of the major points of the entire Bible. Because the answer comes at the end of the passage. In verse 13 it says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. David's heart for God comes from God. David's heart for God comes from God. This is the testimony of the scriptures. Romans 3 verse 11 says, no one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The point of this passage isn't to pull your heart up by your bootstraps. The point of this passage is that God put his spirit upon David, and that spirit rushed through him. Have you ever asked yourself, why, why does Saul have one act of half-hearted obedience and the kingdom is just stripped from him? Just total judgment. But David commits these horrible acts throughout his life, and he's described as a man after God's own heart. He's a type of Christ himself. God promises him that his kingdom will be a kingdom that will never end. His one will sit on his throne and he'll sit on his throne forever. Why? The only difference is the grace and the mercy and love of God that came into David's life because of God's sovereign purpose to choose 
David. I have provided for myself a king among his sons. I have provided for myself. I have seen for myself. I have done it, says God. I chose him. I anointed him. I gave him my spirit. The mercy and the love and the grace of God was on David. Not because of anything David did in himself, but because of God's sovereign, loving, gracious purposes. I hope you're realizing when you're sitting there, because our, our, our tendency, my tendency, is to, is to look around the room or look around whatever social context I'm in, and we measure, each, our, each other, we measure ourselves up. We say, How, I'm more forgiving than that person. I get less angry than that person. Yeah, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing pretty good. But what we have to realize for the grace of God and the love of God and the mercy of God to really come into our hearts is we have to realize and say what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, that I am the chief of sinners. We have to realize that I'm the same as the murderer. It's the only difference is that I had every ability within my heart. The seeds of wickedness were in my heart and then whatever, for whatever reason, they just weren't watered. Because of social situations, because of my upbringing, because God just rescued me and saved me. But I have the propensity. I am one of Jesse's seven sons. I am not David apart from God's saving, miraculous, sovereign act in my life. And that, my friends, that, my friends, is one of the ways that we cultivate this kind of inner life. This kind of inner beauty. We realize that it's only by the sovereign, gracious love of God through Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit that we have any sort of affection for him. Look, the natural, the natural human king uses everything for himself. The kingdom is for him. The, the, you know, the, 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 the resources of the kingdom are for him. But Hannah sang a song and talked about a king that would be different. It says, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. The true king gives away. The true king doesn't say your life for mine. The true king says my life for yours. And that's what inner beauty and inner character and a heart that's really been grabbed and gripped by the grace of God begins to, uh, begins to pour out in that way. No longer looks at everything around it and says, mine, 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 this is for me. These relationships are for me to get ahead. You know, this money is for me to get ahead. These opportunities are for me to get ahead. Instead it says, the Lord Jesus Christ had everything. He gave it up for my sake so that I could have life and live with him in the unity of the spirit with the Father for all eternity. And if that's true... If that's true, then I can begin to live an ethic that says, my life for yours. That's the kind of king you need. And that's the kind of king that you have. And that requires the spirit. That requires the spirit. So let's look at a third point, And we'll close with a few other implications. The third point is the forgotten son. The forgotten son. So we've seen the God who sees, the God who gives, and the forgotten son. Let's look at our text here and unpack the story about these sons passing before. Verse 10 through 12 says, And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. 
And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, which by the way in the Hebrew could also be the smallest. There yet remains the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, go and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Total aside, okay, the storyline of the Bible isn't that God chooses the ugly and not, and not the handsome, okay? Because I, I think it's unique that the writer here makes the point that David himself was handsome, okay? So his point is, isn't, isn't that outward appearances are nothing, it's that they just don't matter. Okay, anyway. Um, this phrase here, when it says, there remains yet the youngest, but he is, uh, he's keeping the sheep. Um, commentators suggest, and, and Eugene Peterson in particular, uh, suggests that the best way to sort of render this phrase is that it's, it's slightly, it's slightly um, uh, what's the word, it's, uh, pejorative. It, it's slightly, it's cutting. It's a little bit of a cutting remark. And Eugene Peterson translates it, uh, he was the runt. <laughs> he was the runt. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not totally condescending, but it's kind of like, oh, okay, thanks, Dad, you know. Robert Alter, he's a Hebrew scholar, and he, uh, he's not a Christian, which is, which is weird. Um, but he, he, has, he has the best commentaries on the Hebrew text. He's got the best commentary on Genesis. He's got the best commentary on Psalms. He's got the best commentary on 1 Samuel. And he says this. He says, David is a kind of male Cinderella left to the domestic chores instead of being invited to the party. But tending the flocks to which he's been banished will give him exactly what he needs in the Goliath battle and later to lead his people. This David story plays out the story of Genesis, which is the reversal of primogeniture. David isn't even as seen as one of the seven sons, the number of completion in Hebrew. David is the eighth child and therefore not even there at all. He's the forgotten son. It says here that that the reversal of primogeniture is the story of Genesis. That means the law of primogeniture means that, that, that the firstborn inherits uh, the, all the family's estate. And throughout the book of Genesis, we see a reversal of that all the way through, right? God chooses Isaac, not Ishmael. God chooses Jacob, not Esau. All the way through. Joseph is the one that becomes uh, the vice regent in Egypt. And it's a story that's happening throughout the scriptures. It's Hannah, not Peninnah. And it's David, not the seven sons. Because God is always using the lowly things, the forgotten things in this life to bring to shame the wise and to bring about his purposes. Because we know that there's another son that comes from Bethlehem. There's another son who another thousand years later is born in Bethlehem, who's also a forgotten son. And then when he came on the scene, Jesus of Nazareth People said, could anything good come out of Nazareth? Isn't this Joseph and Mary's son? This one who's lowly, who Isaiah says there was nothing about his appearance that should be even striking to us? He's the ordinary one. He's the forgotten one. It's always in reverse, my friends. And the place where we see true beauty is on the cross of Jesus Christ. On the cross of Jesus Christ, we have the beautiful one. The one who was glorious for all eternity. The one who had perfect love with the Father. 
hanging on the cross, dying naked in front of his mother for sinners like you and me. And we behold that and we see what true beauty actually is. The one who had everything gave it up for our sake. You know what else this means though? It says that David was tending the flocks to which he'd been banished. And that will give him exactly what he needs in the Goliath battle and later to lead his people. You see this kind of principle that Alter's pointing out for us? This principle showing us what we need, the kind of king that we need. Because when, when Samuel went to find Saul, you know what it says about him? He'd lost his father's donkey. When Samuel comes to find David, he's out tending the sheep. And the Lord Jesus himself in John 10 describes himself as the great shepherd. He's the one who is lowly in heart, he's lowly in spirit, and his burden is easy, his burden is light. He's the shepherd king. The very resources that David needed to be the kind of king that Israel needed, he was learning them on the side in the ordinary things of life, learning to serve, learning to tend and care for sheep. You know what that means for your life? It means that the ordinary things of life are the things that God often uses to bring about his purposes for his namesake and for his glory. That means you moms that are home raising children, doing the seemingly ordinary things of life, changing diapers, raising children, those of you that homeschool or or driving them to and from school and taking them to doctor's appointments. It's the very things that they need. It's the very things that's cultivating the kind of heart and the kind of character that has an inner beauty for God and his sake. Because the whole makeup of it is my life for yours. And the world looks at it and the world despises it. The world says women should rise to a different kind of status. They should learn to be like men. But not in God's design and God's purposes. God sees it and God says, it's beautiful. It is the epitome of the gospel. My life for yours. What else it means? We are talking about this just just last night. What it means is that There also should be a culture in this church of looking at each other for the resources that we need for 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 success in life. You know, there's 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 we we've spoken a lot from the front that that we need to be involved in each other's lives, that a life on life vision of discipleship and a and a and a a side by side vision of discipleship, and that's happening and that's growing as a church. But oftentimes when crisis hits in the family's life, it quickly go to the pastors and the elders, which is fine. We're happy to help you. We're here to help you. But wouldn't it be beautiful if we also had a culture where we looked at the person next to us? There's a lot of great marriages in this church. You don't always have to go to the elders for help. There's a lot of people that have marriages in this church that can help you. There's a lot of older men and older women in this church that would love to disciple you, to just have coffee with you once or twice a month, read the Bible with you, share life with you. I think part of the challenge is that we miss, we miss the ordinary nature of it. The forgotten sons, the forgotten daughters, the forgotten couples, the forgotten saints in this church. Let me close by this. Because my friends, when we look at Samuel's task, Samuel's task was to go and anoint a king. Samuel's text was to go and pick a king. And you know what? His task is not unique because in a lot of ways, in very many ways, we too must choose a king. We all likewise must do the same things. Choose one for our souls. 
And the Lord Jesus is the one who is lowly in heart. He's lowly in his burdens. Look, Israel wanted a king for battle. And you need a king, and I need a king for battle. But the upside-down nature of the kingdom is that your king was victorious by being lowly and weak. That's how he was victorious. He conquered sin, death, and the devil by being lowly and weak. And as you come to him, and you realize that he suffered for your sake, he was crucified on your behalf, you realize that it's the lowly and weak things in your life as well, where God will bring about redemption. He'll bring about his purposes for his glory and his namesake, and he'll make you to be the kind of person that has inner beauty so that you can actually be a help to the people around you. Because only those kinds of people can actually serve one another. We can only serve one another as we cultivate that inner beauty that comes from the Spirit as we embrace and behold the gospel. Let us pray. Father, help us. We thank you for this text. We thank you for this word. And we thank you that we have the true David, the true uh, son of God, the rightful heir to the, the throne of Israel. And we pray that we would behold him even more. And we pray that by your spirit, you would continue to cultivate an inner life, an inner beauty, and that we as a people would stop being concerned with outward appearances, but instead uh, we would see you and we would be changed. We thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.